You're listening to the MLS Multiplex Podcast with contributors from MLSMultiplex.com. Hey everyone, welcome to back to another episode of the MLS Multiplex Podcast. As usual, Drew here with Josh and Connor, but we have a really awesome surprise. Uh, Manuel Fate of uh, Transfer Market will be joining us later in the episode to talk everything about the craziness of the MLS's back tournament. So super excited to have Manuel on, but before we get to Manuel coming on to the show, we have a lot of news to cover. First things first, uh, the first tournament of soccer in the United States has reached its conclusion, and Connor, your beloved Houston Dash did it. They beat the Chicago Red Stars to win the first and maybe the only NWSL Challenge Cup. Canadian Sophie Schmidt got the championship winning goal. I'm in Shea Group kind of put the the final exclamation point on it, so... Connor, I know the Dash winning it made your week a little better, but aside from the Dash winning the Challenge Cup, how was your week, Connor? Uh, if we're going to ignore last night, uh, it's been good. <laughs> um, but yeah, Houston Dash, Canadians are the best country at women's soccer and clubs around the planet. So oh, controversial take, but the correct one. And I'm oh, sure boy. to hear some backlash from that, but Josh... How did you have your week? Uh, well, ignore the Atlanta stuff to begin with, because I know you two really want to dive into that later. I mean, I was going to say, because of all the Atlanta stuff, it's been a, a wild ride in the last seven days. You know, we recorded that last podcast on Monday night, and since then, tons of things have happened. But outside of soccer, pretty good overall. I'm, I'm doing all right, as good as I can be. But a little bummed that my Portland Thorns couldn't get past Houston, although in the end, I guess... Clearly, Houston was deserving to make it on. How was your week, Drew? It was good. It's felt like it's been forever since we recorded last Monday. Um, we've had a lot of news and a lot of firings, and a championship has been crowned. So it's felt like a long week, but it was cool to see Houston win the Challenge Cup. I didn't pick them at all to win that. So I think they were like next to last as far as odds go to win the Cup, um, but they did it. Um, yeah, like I said, Sophie Schmidt converted a penalty kick, and Shea Groom got that second goal. Um, so yeah, the Challenge Cup is over. Uh, first tournament in the books. Uh, first league to start back, and now they finished with that championship. So not getting too specific in the game, guys, but as the Challenge Cup as a whole, I guess, Josh, I'll ask you first, what were your overall thoughts of the NWSL putting this thing on and ending it? I thought it. It went well, all things considered. You know, outside of the initial issues with the Orlando Pride having to withdraw sort of in the 11th hour, once the league got past that and all the players and coaches and staff and officials got inside the bubble in Utah and got the tournament going, things went extremely well. There were a lot of interesting games, no positive tests for COVID, which clearly the best part about the tournament once they got going. And... I think it did a lot to just sort of grow the game here in the United States as far as the domestic game goes. We all know about the international team and just how popular that squad is. But I, for one, you know, I it was great to put my eyes more towards women's soccer, especially as someone who's a soccer fan, even without a team close to me to cheer for. So 
for me, I thought it went really well. It went as well as it possibly could have. And hopefully the league from here can really build on this. I know, Connor, you didn't really get to see a lot of the games, but what is your overall impression of the tournament? What do you think about it? I tweeted this out uh, right after the tournament, pretty much. Uh, It's basically what you said. It didn't start off well, but they put on a pretty successful tournament, all things considered. You know, to have zero COVID cases is a massive achievement, especially considering with what other leagues are currently going through. Uh, When you look at, not naming names, uh, team in Miami, um, they did well. And I think that the NWSL should be proud of what they put on. Uh, it's really grown the game of women's soccer in Canada and the U.S. So I'm happy with it. Like, I don't really think there's any negative to what they ended up doing. Um, yeah, I don't really know what else to say because it was just positive. Like, it was unfortunate they didn't use the jungle gym because I know that was a thing. Um... But, eh, that's like nothing. So to get through a tournament fully healthy, to grow the game of women's soccer in North America, uh, I know that the, I think there was a Twitter account created called NWSL Vancouver, who's now pushing for a team in Vancouver, and there's already the team in Toronto. So I think it's great for what this league is trying to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. I've noticed there's been... Someone started NWSL to Atlanta Twitter account. There's one like for Canadian cities, which I thought was really cool that this league, that fans in this league are trying to expand past the United States border. And especially with a team like Houston winning it all, um, the only team to not have a women's, a U.S. women's national team player on it, and they slip up and win the whole thing. Like, do have a lot of Canadian national team players? So, Connor, as the residential Canadian, do you think the NWSL can expand to Canada or should expand? to Canada? Definitely. Uh, I think it could. I think it should. Uh, you look at how successful the Toronto Six, which is the NWSL, NWSL, NWHL uh, team that was just created and how successful their branding went uh, and how much of a falling they've created. I don't see an issue why they couldn't. I get that it's hockey in Canada, but there's still a following and a very hardcore following of soccer fans in North America or in Canada and North America, um, Vancouver as well. And I think that we're kind of starved for women's soccer. Josh, what do you think? Well, I was going to say, speaking of expansion in NWSL, since we recorded our last podcast, news of an LA expansion team dropped their name, Angel City FC, with a very star-studded group of women headlining that ownership group, including Serena Williams, Natalie Portman, Mia Hamm, among others. So that right there, I think, is a great sign. And having a huge ownership group like that is just going to bring more attention to the league so that cities like Toronto, Atlanta, these bigger markets that don't have teams yet, they can start to join. And we can see the league take off in a really big way, similar to how MLS kind of took off in the early 2010s up until now. It's just been this huge expansion phase. And I I think with how well this tournament went and with Angel City FC coming in, and like you guys were saying, all these Twitter accounts, these fans that want teams, it's going to help sort of this expansion boom. And, you know, another thing we haven't talked about that much, but it seems like the sponsors for NWSL, one, they've gotten a few more sponsors on board, and those sponsors are help pushing the league, which is great because we all know more money means more in general, better product on the field, 
more teams involved in the league, just a bigger outreach. So I'm excited for what the sponsors can help do, and obviously a new big star-studded team like Angel City FC. So, you know, that that's kind of where I'm at on that. Yeah, absolutely. LA, it feels like that was forever ago when they released that, but it was literally just seven days ago. I think it released like either the day after we recorded the podcast or like the night after we finished recording. But yeah, Los Angeles coming in 2022, uh, Racing City Louisville coming in 2021. And yeah, again, Houston winning it, I think, without any national team players kind of opens the door for, especially like with a star-studded ownership group like Angel City, to maybe look at some more international players. Um, like Rachel Daly, um, English International One Tournament MVP, and maybe with new teams coming on board into the league and seeing international players star in this very domestic-based league right now, I think this opens the door for more Canadian players to shine in the NWSL, more international players to shine in the NWSL. So maybe this expansion little phase are going through with these two teams right now. I'm rumored to have more teams. I know Sacramento um, was rumored in there with Grant Wall's tweet about getting a team. And like Josh said, we have a lot of sponsors coming into the league. I know Budweiser is super big. I think Google jumped in. Secret Deodorant, I think, has been a really big one with the players. Um, but as the Challenge Cup ended, there's rumors about um, a potential season after this. Um, I know MLS is kind of in the same phase of continuing to play games after MLS's back tournament, and NWSL is in that same uh, situation trying to play games after the Challenge Cup. Uh, so... Do you, I guess, Connor, start with you. Do you think the NWSL can and should play games after this Challenge Cup is over? Uh, That's a good question because you look at what is happening in the MLB, and I mentioned the Marlins earlier, but that has not been a good situation, and they're less than a series in. Uh, So I just don't know at this point. I don't know if it's smart. I think if there's very strict social distancing measures and strict protocols and all that which hasn't happened in the MLB I think it might be possible but it's really really risky at this point and maybe in August it'll change but it doesn't look like the U.S. numbers are slowing down at all Uh, in Canada in specific Ontario we're pretty stagnant but we've kind of climbed a little bit uh, and people around our age like 20 under 40 um, they have not been the best at socially distancing, which is probably going to cause more spread in Canada. And I don't know if it's safe at this point. Uh, one thing I did want to bring up very quickly, because I can't remember if you guys mentioned it last week or if it happened after the podcast, but, um, I think it'll be really interesting to see as, uh, Canadian internationals, how they do, because, uh, oh, I'm blanking on her name. Jesse Fleming just signed with Chelsea FC um, last week and a pretty big signing for her after leaving, I believe it was UCLA. So look, the game is of women's soccer is really, really growing. And I don't see a reason why the NWSL couldn't grow in the same way. LA worries me a little bit because they don't have like a bona fide billionaire, I believe, um, to really make up for potential losing of other owners i don't know if the money's there necessarily but who knows right now it's about growing the game and i think that the nwsl is doing a really good job of that josh do you think that the nwsl should resume playing uh or do you think that that's just a massive massive mistake 
Well, a week ago, I think I would have been leaning towards yes, just because we didn't really have any tangible proof to sway either way. But like you've mentioned, in the last 12 hours alone, 24 hours maybe I should say, we're seeing a lot of issues with Miami Marlins and MLB. And they're the only sports league in North America that is currently trying to play games with travel in between, right? And WNBA is in its own bubble down in Bradenton, Florida. NBA is down in its bubble in Orlando. MLS is still in its bubble in Orlando. So the early returns are not great. I don't know how MLS or the NWSL could pull it off um, in terms of just the travel issues and the spread of the virus that way. Obviously, I think I speak for everyone in that we want to see those games come back. We want that home market back. But if it can't be done safely, then, of course, I'm not for it. What do you think, Drew, about the possibility of of these games and home markets? Uh, I think I'm kind of very similar to what you think, Josh, that because Major League Baseball was the first team to do the home market idea, we really didn't have a picture of whether or not this would work or not. And to see the Marlins in the situation there and kind of puts me a little more skeptical about it because there's a whole thing, right, where you're honestly the most safe in the bubble if it's taken correctly and if players are doing what they're supposed to be doing, the bubble is a very safe place. I mean, we saw that with NWSL, no zero new cases while in the bubble. So it was a very effective place for the players to be in in Utah. And I think to ask players to go back into a bubble seems pretty extreme and not going to happen. I think the NWSL is on a really high note right now. I think they ended the Challenge Cup very positively, a lot of new sponsors in the league. And maybe if you were to try and play in home markets again, you run the risk of positive test and then it just getting called off like there's questions about the season in major league baseball being called off already um so i think i don't think they should i think they're enjoying a very high note right now um and i think going to home markets makes it a little more complicated as we're seeing with baseball um connor i know you had something you wanted to say yeah i just wanted to ask you guys what would you think about doing a bubble but with families you know, not taking these people away from their families, which is one of the big concerns for the players, etc. Do you think that would work, or do you think that's just not feasible? I think it would work, but I just don't know if players and their families would even want to do it. I think it's a different thing to go away from your family and be in a bubble for six, seven weeks, and then as opposed to bringing your family, right? You're restricting your family from not necessarily going out, but being in the comfort of their own home. And... Yeah, at a place like Disney and these resorts that they're staying at, it could be entertaining for a little bit. But think about if you're like a five-year-old kid, right? It's really cool at first, but the novelty of it is going to wear off so fast. I just don't see how kids in particular could stay entertained and last comfortably for multiple weeks. So I, I think that might be something they end up entertaining. This is obviously such a huge wait-and-see thing. It's just kind of how it's been this whole time, but... I think all eyes right now are on MLB and how they're going to handle the issues they're facing. Drew, what do you think about families going into a bubble with the players? Um, That's interesting. That's an interesting idea. I think when you bring in families, you have a whole new set of issues and potential problems that could arise as far as testing not only players and staff, but testing players and staff family members, which just makes it much more complicated. Um, And again, like Josh said, I don't know how how many players and their families would want to come, whether it be in Disney or Utah, want to isolate from the rest of their life um, for a month or however long it may be. So it's 
interesting. I've never really given it a lot of thought. That's a good question, Connor. Um, again, I imagine leagues have thought about it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it might be left to the discretion of individual families, whether or not they would like to go to the bubble, per se. Um, maybe they leave it up to the families and say it's an option if you want to do it. Um, what do you think about the possibility of families in the bubble? Well, I look at the NBA and what it and the NHL are doing in that they're bringing families in after a certain round. So I believe it's the conference finals and finals. Families are allowed to join NBA players in Orlando and in the NHL in Edmonton. So I think that'll be a really interesting test study, but that's going to be a while from now. You know, that'll be probably early to mid-September, maybe even late September when they'll do this. So I don't know if that's necessarily good, an early enough case study, but I wouldn't rule it out. You know, like with the amount of amenities that Disney has, and if you do quarantine these people together for 14 days and test them like two or three times over that period of time, maybe not every day, you should be safe. And the bubble in the NBA uh, and MLS has really showed that there isn't, if you play it safe, there's not really as much risk as we initially thought. People can come in and out, but you just have to be careful around it. And if they play it safe enough, I don't see why it couldn't happen. So I think it might be a happy medium. Uh, I do think players may not agree with it, but it's something that you will have to discuss and it'll be something that you have to figure out in terms of, do you want to do this? And do you think it's feasible? And do you think this is the right move for right now, which is similar to what Charlotte FC did, or I guess the new name, uh, Charlotte FC, as they announced their name last week, uh, as Charlotte FC, which I'm sure both of you guys hate because it's the most boring name on the face of the planet. But, yeah, what do you guys think of the whole crest, the colors, the name, everything? Um, like you said, Connor, I hate the name. It's just because we have what Austin FC, Nashville SC, um, I'm trying to think, Toronto FC. FC like, Cincinnati, FC, FC Dallas. Yeah, they just flipped the city and the FC part. So, really, there's not a whole lot going on. I love Charlottetown. I thought that was cool. Um, I just like mascots with MLS teams. Like, I think, like, Portland Timbers, Vancouver Whitecaps are, like, the coolest names in the league. Um, so, FC. And then you get in the whole debate whether or not it should be FC or SC because it's a soccer, but that's a whole different ballgame. Um, so, I was pulling for Charlottetown. I'm glad it's not all Carolinas FC or Gliders, I think, was the other name we all were kind of opposed on. But as far as the crest goes, um, there is the crown, so they kind of stick with that whole, I think it's Queen City royalty type branding that they have. But Charlotte FC, it's, you can't really have a take on it. It's not the worst name out of the bunch, but it's for sure not the best. It's very bland and mediocre in my eyes. Um, Josh, what do you think about Charlotte FC being the name? I think it's a, it's disappointing, again, Played it super, super safe. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, I think whatever's going to work for them is going to work for them. If the fans like it, then that's great. That's all that really matters because that's who's going to care about their team name. That being said, 
you know, you wanted town. I would have been cool with town. I would have been cool with Charlotte Athletic as well. We talked about that a couple podcasts ago. I will say I do really like the crest. I like the crown. I like the colors that it looks like they're going to use with the, the black and the mint green and the teal blue sort of combinations. So it's no Seattle Kraken, which I think everyone can agree <laughs> is a pretty awesome team name. I want to become a Seattle hockey fan now just from seeing that way more so than becoming a, a Charlotte soccer fan. But I do really like the colors and I, I hope, I really hope that Adidas does a good job with their first kids much better than, you know, inner Miami, which black and pink, great color combo, sort of a miss there. <laughs> so with this other cool color combo, I hope they can do something really good with it. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't like the name. I think it's just super boring and I don't like the abbreviation they're going for as their nickname, CLTFC. It's just like, I don't know. It's just too much in my mind. Like, why not just call it CFC? Like, we don't really have one of those. You do have Chicago Fire, but they go by CFFC. So that also, I mean, I guess it's like NYCFC. It just seems like a a mouthful to me and definitely could have gone in a different direction with that without going too deep into that. Connor, what do you think about the name and the colors and the crest? Uh, I don't really have an issue with the name. Like, again, it's Charlotte FC. It's pretty bland. It's kind of just MLS in general, in terms of when it comes to names. Uh, so Says the Toronto FC fan. Yeah, it's the Toronto <laughs> FC fan. Uh, I don't really have an issue with it. I They're getting dangerously close to a bit of a copyright issue on CLTFC um, when you look at Celtic over in Scotland. So they'll have to be a little careful there, but I don't know. It's They got unlucky when they announced this because they had the Seattle Kraken, as Josh mentioned, announced their name and logo and everything like that like immediately after so yeah when you have to compete with the kraken it's a little bit tougher than competing with something like chicago fire fc and that just got awful rebranding josh what do you have to say i we haven't mentioned it yet but their secondary logo with the clt fc it's all intertwined i do like that i think that's pretty cool as well it is sort of similar to Manchester City and NYCFC where the the letters are all kind of jumbled on top of each other that sort of lettering but I think it it looks cool and I think it can be added onto some of their their gear some of their um their kits I think they can do a lot with that too so the name is kind of boring but I think the the branding is pretty good yeah Connor well I just wanted to say uh I completely agree with you i think that the secondary logo looks pretty cool and all their jersey designs have looked pretty good so far but i think we should sort of move on to our guest of the hour uh manuel fate from transfer market uh in north america he's done a ton of really good pieces most recently an interview with iowa canola uh, which you can go and check out on the transfer market website but let's just sort of start off with how you're doing right now and coping with everything that's going on right now because it's been pretty crazy recently yeah, I'm doing all right. How about you guys? We're all we're all doing good. Um, some of us will worse than others after last night, but I'm sure we'll dive into that New York City Toronto game a little bit later. Um, let's start off with some sort of breaking news. Uh, who we'll touch on just mentioned that this happened is there's a new Concacaf qualifying format uh, for the World Cup. If you want to 
get Manuel's opinion on it. He just put out a new article for Transfer Market. So go and check that out. Uh, we're not going to really touch it on that now because we have a ton of stuff to get to. But go there. Uh, he does some really good work. So go read that. Um, in other news, I think it's time, Josh and Drew. I think it's time. Frank DeBoer was fired by Atlanta United after they... How do I put this other than crash and burned? Um, because that's really what happened when they were in that MLS's back tournament. Um, not scoring a goal is not exactly a positive when the only other two teams to do that didn't even play a game. Uh, but I'll just let you two take it away before we get Manuel's more experienced and probably knowledgeable, uh, less emotional opinion. Who wants to start? And this is your therapy session, so please go ahead. Um, I will start us off. I First off, I think I was pretty surprised by the move. Um, I remember our baseball team here in Atlanta was playing their opening day, and I was in the car getting ready to watch a stress-free day of baseball, and then I get the notification on Twitter that he's fired. Um, so that was pretty surprising. Um, I think I go back to whether or not... It was a good move because you look at his 2019, and it was very successful, I think, uh, winning U.S. Open Cup and becoming one game uh, Eastern Conference final away from going to MLS Cup, back-to-back MLS Cup final appearances, and winning U.S. Open Cup under him and Campione's Cup, which you can debate legitimacy on that all day long. Um, but his 2019, I thought, was pretty successful. You win U.S. Open Cup. That's a pretty good year for most organizations. Um, but I think the format of this MLS's back tournament kind of put – more pressure on the front office to make the move. Um, I think if he had lost three games in a row in the regular season and not scored a goal, maybe we don't see this as soon as we did. But because this tournament format, it very much put emphasis on those shortened three games. And like you said, Connor, it was very much crashing and burning. Um, so I was surprised by the move. Uh, I think it was an, the right move. I think it was a necessary step. I don't think it's the only step that needs to be taken by the club. Uh, personally, I think the front office has gotten off a little bit easier because you look at the players that are not on the team anymore, and I don't think the front office has done a good enough job at replacing them. You look at Darlene Tanagby, Julian Gressel, Leandro Gonzalez-Perez, um, and Joseph being hurt, you really can't do anything about it. And to their credit, I don't think you can replace Darlene Tanagby to his full effect. There's only one of those players. He's one of the best in the league. But I didn't really feel like there was a replacement at all for those players. I mean, Julian Gressel and Nagby and Leandro Gonzalez-Perez, maybe Fernando Meza. Um, but it just felt like there were some holes in the team, in the roster, that I don't think the front office filled. And maybe Frank DeBoer was kind of the scapegoat for that. I do think he was a very large part of the problem, and I do think he needed to go. But I don't think it's the only thing that needs to happen. I think it was a necessary step. Um, but I think maybe the format of this tournament made it a little quicker than if this were a regular season. I don't think we would have seen it this quickly. Um, but overall reaction, I was surprised that it happened this fast. Uh, I don't want to say I'm happy about it because, again, he won a major championship trophy with the U.S. Open Cup. Um, so I think it's a step in the right direction, but I think there's still more changes that need to come for this club to get back to the standard it set itself right as MLS champions and Open Cup champions. Uh, Josh, what did you think about the firing? I'm with you. I was pretty surprised. I wasn't expecting it to happen so soon. It did sort of feel inevitable after the way the tournament ended. 
And at the end of the day, it's just unacceptable and inexcusable that they didn't score a single goal. Like Connor said, they were the only team to not score a goal besides the teams that didn't participate in the tournament. And to have the attacking talent that you have, I mean, this is the same team that dropped $30 million on players like Ezekiel Barco and P.T. Martinez. And for them to not get a single goal out of those two, and let alone the other players on the team, is not enough for a club like Atlanta. The expectations that they've set with their fan base, with their own staff and players, it just wasn't living up to it anymore. And Drew, you're right. DeBoer got the trophies from last season, and that's great. And there was a pretty strong MLS Cup playoff run as well. But at the end of the day, the attacking style that was promised to the fans is just not there anymore. And it looked like DeBoer didn't have clear instructions for his players and what they were going to do every time they stepped out on the pitch. One more thing before we flip it over to Manuel and get his opinion on this. It just didn't seem like DeBoer was very good at getting the best out of his players. You look at a coach like Jurgen Klopp, for example, who, yes, he's got a very clear tactical identity on the field, but he also gets the best out of every single one of his players. He's a great man manager. You can tell he's got a great relationship with the guys in his squad. And people forget, but a year ago at this time is when the All-Star game was just about to happen. LGP was making those comments to the media about how DeBoer did not having the players play the wanted the way they wanted to. You had PT Martinez talking to the Argentine press about the same thing. Joseph yelling at the staff on the sideline in the middle of a game in Seattle in July. So if it weren't for that August tournament run in the U.S. Open Cup and the Campeones Cup victory, he might have gotten fired even sooner. So no goals, inexcusable. Lack of style, inexcusable. I think it was time. This is the best time, given the the weird nature that 2020 has brought on all of us. Manuel, what did you think about the DeBoer firing, and do you think anyone in the front office should be held accountable for this as well? Yeah, I think it's been coming. I mean, when you really look at the the things that you hear coming out of Atlanta, I have some friends down there that cover the team quite closely and um, are very close with some of the players. And of course, um, we had a German kid there and Julian Gressel, right? Um, so Kevin Graz as well. Um, and when you hear things that come out of, of the out of the dressing room, for example, players cheering when Ajax Amsterdam was knocked out of the Champions League, you know, when players are unified against the coach for little things, then it's really hard to really turn the ship around. And, um, you know, Drew pointed it out. Uh, Frank de Boer lost a lot of pieces in the offseason. I think that letting go Julian Gressel and Nagby and LGP for next to nothing and um, not getting the right pieces in return is something that the front office has to be held responsible for. And they have to be held responsible for the fact that they they hired a coach that did not fit the style that Atlanta United uh, wanted to play. You know, they basically said, OK, look, uh, Tata Martino, he played this, this Barcelona style of football, right? Um, possession based and what can we do? Or oh, let's bring in Frank de Boer. He played for Barcelona once, so that should be a fit, right? But the thing is, it doesn't quite work that way. And I think when you have a team that is designed the way Atlanta are designed, if you have a club that is designed that the way Atlanta are designed, and then I, I was very fortunate that I've been down there last year and I witnessed the entire the entire setup of the club. And I think then you need to bring someone who also fits sort of the expectations that have and high expectations, rightfully high expectations that have been set by this club ever since it entered MLS. And while Frank de Boer was a big name, I don't think it was necessarily the name that 
you wanted as a club supporter and the the name that fitted the team that was assembled around all these very young and exciting players from South America and they're still going down that route I mean they're bringing in players from South America they're still scouting down there and I think for me personally if you're going down that route you also have to bring in a coach that can navigate a dressing room like that and we all know that a dressing room that is predominantly occupied by Latin American players is not always the easiest to navigate but you know then you bring someone who understands the culture and I don't think Frank de Boer was capable of doing that he was great at Ajax But he wasn't great at Crystal Palace and he was not great at Inter Milan. And those were also difficult dressing rooms to navigate. And um, I feel like that is something that they need to correct. They need to correct the sort of high level that they set with Tata Martino hiring. This was a coach that brought a clear philosophy to the club. And I think that is something that they now need to emulate. So the blame is on the coach, but for not, you know, following up in Tata Martino's footsteps, but it's also on the club and the club ownership and the people in charge for not bringing in someone who clearly fits that philosophy of football that they laid out very early on. So would you say that he basically was destined to fail from the beginning? And then to follow up, who do you think his replacement should be? And do you have a sort of sense of anyone who might be rumored to be in consideration for the open manager spot on Atlanta? Yeah. Well, you're hearing a lot of names. There's Marcelo Gallardo, right, from River Plate. He's been named. But um, unfortunately, I think he has bigger fish to fry in Europe. Um, I heard the name Jesse Marsh. Now, there's no chance Jesse Marsh is going to the German Bundesliga. I think he would be a great fit there. But uh, again, bigger fish to fry. Gabriel Heinze has been has been uh, named as well. I think this is, this is uh, someone who I find really interesting. And I mean, all those names point in, into a certain direction, don't they? That they um, that they are going that South American route and, and trying to find a head coach. And I, I think there is a lot of interesting names down there and a lot of coaches that do good work. And um, MLS has sort of expanded into this league that likes to poach the best talents now from, from South America, similar to what the Europeans are doing. So... Personally, I think that is the direction that they need to take. Uh, who it is going to be ultimately to be, that's going to be interesting to see. Um, I think that in Gabriel Heinze, that would be a candidate that I think could really you know, bring something to the club. It's, it's a recognizable name, but also a name who has had success in South America and I think could really navigate that dressing room quite well. So you're saying it won't be Maurizio Pochettino? <laughs> Um, I mean, Tata Martino was that sort of hiring, wasn't he? But yeah, no, I I, I think that uh, Mauricio Pochettino, <laughs> I think that, I, we would all love it, don't we? I, I, it would be a fantastic thing. It would be something that I don't think would last very long um, because Mauricio Pochettino will get hired by someone in Europe. Um, I think it's only a question of time. But um, yeah, it, that would be nice but I don't think so. <laughs> See, before we started recording all this, uh, Drew and I were talking about who we thought the next coach would be, and I I personally, as someone in Atlanta, I think Gabriel Hines would be the best fit. You know, he's not too big of a name like Gallardo or Pochettino or Marsh to come over here, and obviously from what he did with Velez Sarsfield in Argentina, he looks like he's got a clear tactical identity, something that the supporters in Atlanta would really enjoy. But they said... 
the same thing about Tata Martino that I think we're saying about Pochettino right now, right? There's no way they can get him. But Eels was at Tottenham when they picked up Pochettino as their coach. So I think there's that connection there that I think there's a sliver of a possibility that Pochettino ends up in Atlanta. And after the way they pulled off getting Martino, and at the time everyone was just so completely surprised that at this point I don't think it would be the absolute craziest thing in the world. I think you're right, Manuel. He definitely will probably end up at a bigger club in Europe, but it's a possibility. I think if you pay him enough, he would do it. Uh, I think it, it is an interesting opportunity. He was linked to Benfica. And um, when, you, when you look at the rankings of MLS, it's a fast-growing league. It's a fast-growing market. You know, it is something that's becoming more and more interesting. MLS does not need to necessarily hide behind Europe as much as they used to anymore. You give him enough money and you tell him this is an interesting enough project, um, you know, I think, yeah, maybe. But there's so many factors right now. The fact that he is in demand in Europe, um, the elephant in the room, COVID-19, right? That makes it very difficult to maybe attract certain talent that you would usually be able to attract. And, uh, you know, he's just one big coaching fire in Europe away of landing a big spot. And... That's just, you know, certain things to keep in mind. And then on top of that, I think Tottenham still get 18 million euros for, for, from whoever signs him next. So that's maybe a tiny little piece, piece of information to keep in mind as well that, you know, they, he is still under contract at Tottenham and Tottenham will want, um, want a fee for, for whoever wants to sign him. Yeah, that might kill that signing right there. <laughs> uh, I don't know if Atlanta would be quite willing to part with 18 million for Pochettino and they could get someone a little bit better maybe uh, or a little bit cheaper I guess is a better way to put it down in South America but who knows I guess you're saying there's a chance so there has to be a chance everything is possible in football (laughs) yeah Uh, Leicester City proves that Uh, clearly Leicester City proves that let's move on to the elephant in the room Uh, MLS is back Uh, coming into this tournament it wasn't exactly viewed in the most positive light, uh, to say, especially holding it down in Florida. Um, we all were a little skeptical when it first started. In a similar sense, as to we were skeptical to the NWSL, and that was clearly a success. And MLS has been a success so far. Um, so let's dive into it a bit. Uh, I know Manuel has some opinions that he probably wants to get out there. So why don't we start with the group stage and sort of think around, like, where did you sort of see the group stage fitting? Do you think it was sort of successful? How much do you think the FC Dallas-Nashville situation sort of hampered the beginning of the tournament? Just how do you sort of think that the entire early process of this entire endeavor went for MLS? Yeah, I think that the the, the start of it couldn't gotten any worse, to be honest. Uh, you know, the... The, the way that um, they, they, they chose the, the ESPN Wide World of Sport Complex, which is, which is an amazing facility. I've been lucky enough to have worked down there and um, seen it. And it's an amazing, incredible facility. And I think when they chose it, it, it made sense. And then uh, Florida did Florida things and, you know, um, became the eye <laughs> of the storm for COVID-19. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I think it just, it, it was, it, it, Actually, I thought it's going to be a disaster, um, to be quite honest. The week before it started, I really thought this is, this is going to be quite bad. 
And uh, the fact that uh, we, have, we had this experience here with the Vancouver Whitecaps, that they postponed travel twice. I know Toronto did everything in their power not to go, you know, postponing yep, yep. the trip twice. Um, yep, yep. Um, every time someone sneezed in the background, they're like basically said, we're not going. Um, that's that's facts. They all held back and they were all worried. And we now know that the bubble itself is safe. Um, we now know that the bubble itself held. We have to give MLS full credit for the fact that they actually pulled it off. We now know that Dallas and Nashville got those positive cases outside of the bubble once they were inside the bubble. I mean, what is it now? Four or five rounds of testing without positive cases. That, in, that, in my opinion, shows that the bubble works. The bubble as a sports comp in the U.S. is probably the only way you're going to be able to do sports. I mean, the, the news broke just before we went on this podcast with MLB and with all the positive cases in, in baseball, right? So I think the bubble, it, it works. And um, I have to really say to MLS, the fact, the way they pulled it off, the organization that they pulled it off, the fact that they had the flexibility to just say, okay, Nashville and Dallas, well, sorry, you guys are out. Um, hopefully there will be a regular season. You can make those games up. But I think once the group stage got going, the first few games were kind of like, oh, this isn't, this isn't great. But it, it, it grew. The tournament grew and the Kings got worked out. And I think towards the end of the group stage, we, 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 got, we were focusing on the storylines of the, of the tournament rather than of COVID-19. And that makes it a success in my opinion. Couldn't have said it any better myself. I think that really encapsulates how all of us felt. You know, we were all skeptical coming into this, as I mentioned beforehand. And to see MLS pull something off very successfully, I think, was a little surprising um, to some of us. Uh, I may be a guilty party in that faction, but look, it worked. And we had a pretty decent tournament overall. And let's dive into the actual tournament. Um, why don't we start with who is the biggest surprise for you in terms of how well they did so far I guess in that group stage um, has it been Cincinnati who somehow got out of the group stage has it been Vancouver who with a third string goalkeeper almost won a knockout round match uh, even though they definitely shouldn't have who has sort of surprised you men well we'll start with you first and then we'll sort of jump to Josh and Drew who surprised you I mean, I could go with the Whitecaps. That would be the easy choice, right? As a team that I cover quite a lot and I know the people that work there quite well being based on, on Canada's West Coast. But I would go with Columbus. Um, you know, it's not it's not that they got out of the group stage. I, I thought that they would, but it's the way they've done it. And I think they, they have been the best team at this tournament. And that is the surprise Um that's the surprise for me, that they have been the actual best team at this tournament, um, even better than LAFC, right? And we, we, have, we have these high opinions of LAFC, but I, for me, Columbus, the, the way that they have navigated the group stage so flawlessly, um, that first performance, that 4-0, was probably the most convincing performance early on, and then they just kept going at it. And that's, for me, um, it, it just shows that there's some very good work done there um, in, in Columbus and that that's a team, you know, two years ago, we thought they would no longer exist around this time. And now they look like one of the biggest success stories in, in the league. And uh, Kali Porter is doing some fantastic work. And the, the fact that they brought in someone like Lucas Silarian from, from Tigres, um, it's a key piece in my opinion. And 
yeah, I really, really like what they have been doing, and um, I'm really curious to see how how they're going to do for the rest of that tournament. All right, Josh, what do you think around like who's been your biggest surprise so far? Yeah, I think the Columbus shout for Manuel is a really good one. You know, he's right. We I think all three of us when we did our predictions for the tournament, we expected them to get out of the group. But I mean, you look at the, the table, and they were the only team that won all three of their group stage games. Definitely most convincing. Didn't give up a single goal in the process as well. Only team that can say that. So very, very impressive. They look super balanced. For me, I think I'm I think I'm gonna go with Cincinnati. For them to get two wins is impressive in and of itself. Because, again, looking at the group stage table, there aren't that many teams that got multiple wins. And most of them ended up winning their group. So for Cincinnati to get two wins, finish second in their group, you know, granted, yeah, it was against a pretty terrible Atlanta team. And Red Bulls didn't look that great either. But they did what they could, right? They took advantage of what they can they could control. So I'm excited to see how they handle Portland. We've seen in the past Portland struggle to break down teams that sit back and clearly we saw that happen with Red Bulls against Cincinnati so they might be able to sneak into the corner final but I think for me everything that they've gone through in their short time in MLS so far for them to get two wins advance to the knockout stage which is what a bunch of other teams could not accomplish was pretty surprising for me uh, what about you Drew who's the most surprising team for you in the group stage uh, I think I'm going to go with a team that Manuel mentioned um, the Vancouver Whitecaps uh, really because I mean I kind of think most people viewed them with Cincinnati, right, as just a free three points in the group stage. Um, and I think it was that last match against Chicago. Not only did they have to win to advance to the knockout round, but they had to win by two goals, and they did it. And this is without – I think Max Kripal was out at that time. That might have been the first game he wasn't available for selection. I think they even had to get Montreal Impacts, like backup keeper, to come in for the match. And they're missing, I think, a third of their roster. I mean, you're missing Lucas Cavallini, Freddie Montero, and Montero's like this leadership role in Vancouver, right? And then they could somehow pull it off against Chicago, come a penalty shootout away against beating Sport in Kansas City, which you're right, Connor. It was kind of, I think it was like 35 to 8 shot total between the Whitecaps and Sport in Kansas City. But they took it as far as you want to, and no one expected them to get to the round of 16. And for them to put in that performance against Chicago, winning 2-0, um, and then hanging with Sport in Kansas City pretty far, that shows a sense of life for me from the Whitecaps that – I mean, a couple podcasts ago, we were talking about the Whitecaps front office and how just it seemed like nothing good was going on in Vancouver, and now they just surprised everyone without a third of their roster. So if they can do that without these players, I mean, you have Ali Adnan, who I think we mentioned might be the best left back in the league. Um, he showed up, I think, as a really big leader for the Whitecaps this tournament. Um, so I've been very much surprised by them. Um, it stinks to see their run is over. I think everyone was pulling for him in that penalty shootout, but I think... If there is a rest of the 2020 season um, and the rest of the roster comes together, I think they can combine when you have Cavallini and Freddie Montero. I think they can do do something pretty special in Vancouver. So they've been the biggest surprise to me is the Whitecaps. Yeah, I think those are all very valid picks. You know, Another team that you could have mentioned is Orlando because I personally, if you listen to our prediction episode, was not very high on them. Uh, I was choosing Inter-Miami, which... Boy, oh boy, was that a mistake. Um, yeah, uh, again, like there have been some very surprising teams so far this tournament, and, and it's shown that it really depends on the style of game and the style of tournament, and not all teams are built to succeed in these type of games. Um, LA Galaxy, maybe 
in the same boat, although they have other issues around roster. So let's move on from the surprise and let's keep it positive because we need positive stuff in today's society. Who do you think is the best team from the group stage? Who do you think performed the best? Um, I know that there are some teams who we thought were going to do better, who dropped out, and other teams who surprised us. So who do you think was the best team so far in the group stage? We'll start with you again, Manuel. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to go with my surprise team, Columbus. I mean, uh, you could easily see, say, LAFC, but um, yeah, I, I, I still, I, I don't get me wrong, I do think that LAFC are the most talented team at this tournament, and I do think that they're favorites to win it. Uh, although they have a very tough, tough ask today, uh, but time of recording against uh, Seattle. I know we don't want to touch on to it too much, but yeah, I, I think that uh, for me, the best team uh, has been Columbus. And uh, I, I'm really curious to see how far they're going to go in, in this tournament. I think they could win it. And um, there, is, there is a lot to be earned by winning this tournament. You know, we're talking a million dollars, which in MLS is still decent, decent money. And a CONCACAF Champions League spot. We don't know what CONCACAF Champions League is going to look like, but, you know, you're, you're going to have it. You might as well um, aim for it. And I know in Canada, we, we, aim, we look at CONCACAF Champions League a little bit. I think we, have, we put more value into it than maybe in the States. But um, I think it's something to play for. And that's something that when you, when you play the sport, you want to be in any competition that you can potentially play in, right? So I think for them, um, this is something that they should really aim for and win this tournament. And I think they can really do it because they have the most balanced squad and maybe the best coach. Yeah, uh, Caleb Porter has done a phenomenal job with Columbus and bringing in Darlington Nagby has been a serious help to them. Um, clearly, you could see the impact that he had on Atlanta. And now he's just brought that to Columbus, which has been a massive positive. Josh, who do you think has been your best team so far? Are you following uh, Manuel and Columbus, or do you have someone else who you think might be able to top them? Yeah, for me personally, Columbus is the best of the real deal. Again, they didn't allow a single goal, which is super impressive in this style of tournament. They look to me the most balanced. They can hit you on the counterattack. They can get a goal after a long spell of possession. They can get you in transition. I mean, whatever it is, they look like they have the ability to press when they want. They have the ability to sit back if they have to. So this looks like a team that is super dangerous in every aspect of a game, and that will probably end up serving them well in the knockout portion of the tournament. That being said, personally, I think Portland looked really, really good from the group stage. The, the way they performed against the Galaxy and Houston specifically, they, they got the job done. Jeremy Obovese has looked really good. We'll probably end up talking about him a little bit more down the line. And I think he's been a, a big help to the team. And obviously, they fought really well against LAFC. The games between those two teams are always super entertaining. For them to come away with the draw and end up winning the group is really big because that's a really, really strong group on paper. So for me, Portland looks really good. And we talked before the tournament kicked off. They have the potential to be a really good knockout tournament team with their strengths in counterattacking. But they didn't counterattack their way into the knockout round. They looked like they could attack really well with the ball and have possession for a while. And that's something that was really lacking from that team last year. So I think they've sort of leveled up. And I'm, I want to say Columbus is the best team, but I definitely think Portland's right there with them. What about you, Drew? 
Yeah, I think kind of the piggyback of both you guys, I'm going to say Columbus is the best team um, specifically because we remember that first game against Cincinnati, it was a 4 nothing win. And at the time, we just thought it was Cincinnati being Cincinnati. And then as the tournament went on, they shocked everyone, right? So maybe that was more of Columbus being good, not Cincinnati being the pushover we thought they were going to be. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you're, you're not allowing a goal in the group stage and defense wins championships. So, and I think Don to Nagby, he's like, I think I saw that was like 157 for 160 on passing. So I, Columbus has been ridiculously impressive for every reason you guys just said. Um, I'm a sucker for defense. I mean, if you don't allow a goal, you can't lose a game. So if they keep this defense up, um, they have Minnesota United. I think it's their round of 16 game. And I've, I like them in that round. Um, I think in a couple of podcasts ago, I picked them to win the whole thing, and I'm sticking by that prediction. So they've been – they impressed me a lot in the group stage. Um, and may, I think they'll, I, they'll beat Minnesota um, – so, yeah, they've been the most impressive to me just because of mainly the big zero, not allowing a single goal in the knockout stage. And if you can keep that going around, in the group stage, rather, if you keep that going in the knockout stage, things are looking pretty good for you. Yeah, uh, I sort of, I know two Canadian teams who would definitely disagree with that Canadian um, belief around the zeros. If you score zero goals or allow zero goals, you can still win games. But who knows? Um, let's dive into... Your biggest disappointment of this tournament so far, so we could end on a positive note before we hit the knockout rounds. Who has been your biggest disappointment? We'll do both as a team and then separately as a player, because I think it's going to be really interesting to hear just how differently you guys see teams as being disappointments. Um, let's change it up, and we'll start with Josh this time. Uh, we can end with Manuel. So, Josh, who do you have as being your biggest disappointment uh, at the MLS is back tournament? It's really easy to pick Atlanta United again. Only team that didn't get a goal. One of two teams that didn't get a single point out of it. But I think I'm going to go with Inter-Miami. You know, they look more like an expansion team than I think people were expecting. And yeah, it's hard to be an expansion team in a league. You know, it doesn't matter the league, but especially in MLS. But they just could not get the job done. They looked better in than their opposition at certain points in all three of their games. So for them to not come away with a point, I think was a bit of a disappointment. Granted, I didn't expect them to get out of the group stage. Obviously, they didn't. But, Connor, I know you had them getting into the knockout round, and I'm sure a bunch of other people expected them to at least advance into the knockout round. So I think it's just... Again, it's an expansion team, but there are a set of expectations because of their coach, because of Rodolfo Pizarro, because of players like Nico Figal, who played well, but for whatever reason, that team, they just could not get the job done. And, and I remember watching the press conference after their first game against Orlando and just seeing how frustrated it was Luis Robles and Juan Agudelo who did the conference as the players. And they looked, they looked super defeated. And that was just the first game against Orlando because they knew that at times they were better than Orlando, right? And they gave up that game-winning goal at the end. They, they almost played to a draw and almost got a result out of that game, and it felt like that's what happened in their other two games too. I thought they were better than NYCFC, and they gave up that they had that one defensive lapse that allowed NYCFC to get the one goal to win in advance. So I think for me, Atlanta was definitely super disappointing, probably the worst, but I'm going to go with them in Miami just because – they didn't get a single point, and I think they performed well enough to. 
Well, what about you, Drew? Who was most disappointing for you? Yeah, I think you bring up a good point with Miami because expansion teams, it feels like with the Atlantis and the LAFCs, if you spend a lot of money, it kind of feels like you're going to win automatically, and those two expansion clubs kind of ruined it for the rest of expansion teams. But I'm, I'm going to say Atlanta. Uh, what is there to say that hasn't been said? Not scoring a single goal, um, not getting a single point, and it's not that they were an expansion team, right? This is a team that won MLS Cup 2018, 2019 U.S. Open Cup champions. And I think it would be justifiable to maybe get third in the group. I think this is a pretty good group as far as matchups go for, against them because Red Bulls in that press, apparently Atlanta just can't beat that press. Um, in Columbus, we've talked about how good they are. But that match against Cincinnati, it just seemed like that was – they played like an expansion team, I felt like. It felt like there was no urgency, no creativity, um, the center backs felt like they passed the ball to each other more than they got the ball to Pity Martinez and Ezekiel Barco, which, like you said, $30 million for two of the best attacking players, or supposedly two best attacking players in Major League Soccer. And it just felt like they never got into the tournament at all. Um, and obviously that might be a little bit on the manager as that firing happened. But, yeah, Atlanta United came in with, for sure, a lot of expectations to win this, as the front office has said, that they're in this in every competition to win every competition, whether that be – CONCACAF Champions League, U.S. Open Cup, and now MLS is back. And to see them not only not win the trophy, but just fall flat on their faces while doing it, um, not creating a whole lot of chances. The only two I'm thinking of are George Bellows' shot off the post in that first game and then Adam John's header that was really good save for the Rebels. But besides that, I'm not thinking a whole lot of good chances they created. Um, maybe some free kicks that they earned right outside the box that Pity and Barco to, But... I didn't see any creativity from LA United, and that's why they're the biggest disappointment to me. Manuel, who was the biggest disappointment for you in the group stage? Yeah, I have, I have some thoughts about Inter-Miami, and I think it's um, probably the most difficult time to be an expansion franchise in the history of this league because of everything that goes on, because they never had the chance to build any momentum. And I think... Winning is habitual, and if you um, can't build that momentum, it's it's extremely tough for for a new young group to get together and do that, right? And to never have experience playing in your own stadium, and um, with all the difficulties that are going on, and and they're missing some really major pieces still that they probably weren't able to to land because of what's going on with with COVID nineteen and the difficulties of the transfer market and. The difficulties of negotiation and bringing in players from overseas and um, I think that they are just so much of an unfinished product that it's really hard to hard to and difficult to judge them at the moment so it's for me it would be easy to go with Inter Miami and I, I was very disappointed with them but I think you have to keep all those things in mind when we judge them and it is really easy to go with Atlanta um, for the many reasons that you mentioned, both of you mentioned, but I think the big part for me when it comes to Atlanta, as a journalist, you're always excited when you when you get to cover them because they're such such a great brand. You know, they are a club that has set the benchmark in MLS together probably only with the Seattle Sounders in, in building a community-driven club, a club that's really pulling everyone together. And do... I think what really disappointed me is not the fact that they went out. Besides um, setting many franchise records, by the way, first time in, in the history of Atlanta United that they didn't score for two games in a row, let alone three, right? But it was just that that entire team seemed so deflated. 
And that gets us back to what we said earlier about Frank de Boer. It was obviously not working. But it's also about the way that they have, and I think it was you, Drew, who said 30 million on the bench, right? Or 30 million on, on the park. Um, I mean, we value Pitti Martinez and uh, Barco a little bit below that. But it's still $23, 25000000 million walking around on the pitch, you know? There's teams in MLS that are worth less than that combined, let alone two players. So you got quite right. But the fact that there is not a real creative player on that team. Um, and I mean with creative player, I mean someone who really can be an engine in that midfield to give players that are creative or individually that creative spark that they need to, to be ignited. That is something that's really concerning in my opinion. And that is very disappointing because you always saw that with Atlanta. You saw that there was always a lot of players on that team that could just give them that creative spark that, that it really underlined the identity that this club has. And that identity has been, for whatever reason, completely holed away. And I think that is that is very sad. And I found that very, very disappointing because this is a club that, I, I, as an as an independent, I want to rule, root, root for because I feel like that they're really changing the, 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 the storyline in MLS. And you want them to get it right. And you want them to get it right every year because... If they don't, that's a real danger for the rest of the league and what the league wants to build long term. And I, I really hope that they really learn from this disappointment. And I think they did because that's why they're obviously making changes. But um, that's why for me, it was such it's almost like a devastating disappointment. It's almost like, you know, a real disappointment in that that you don't even really have the words for it. You know, um, you know when you kind of tell your kids, like, I'm disappointed in you, and then just silence. That's like, that's how I felt about Atlanta United in that tournament. I really hope that they, they learn some very hard lessons from this. Yeah, that's kind of exactly how I felt about my team last night and who I think has been the most disappointing team at MLS's back. You know, I didn't have the highest expectations for Atlanta coming into this tournament because they didn't have Joseph Martinez. Um, but again, they they just, it was completely unacceptable how they finished this tournament and how they started it and everything in between. Um, and Frank DeBoer's firing really shows just how that is the case. Um, I will sway from all of your picks, uh, and I'm going to go with Toronto FC. Now, I know they got through to the knockout round, and that is an accomplishment in itself, but when you look at how they played and the decisions that Greg Vanny made um, and just how poor defensively they were, I was just it was so disappointing uh, as a fan of the club. Omar Gonzalez, this might have been his worst stretch of games I've seen him play in a Toronto FC kit. Michael Bradley against New York City was just... It's potentially, again, the worst I've seen him play in a Toronto FC kit. Um, Greg Vanny was terrible throughout the entire tournament. You know, I, they did get two draws, but one of those draws, they were up 2 nothing with seventy min, or 20 minutes left in the match, and they blew it. Whether you blame that on the fact that they weren't fit enough or because Gonzalez and Mavinga were cramping and Simon and Zavaleta, which have clearly not worked in the past, were put together again. It was just, it. they embodied the, disappoint, the word disappointment, in my opinion. And hopefully they find a way forward. We'll see if they can bounce back in a regular season if it happens. Um, but who knows? They were involved in one of 
the best games of the tournament, and they had one of the best players in the tournament, which I want to get your opinions on now. We'll start with the game because I think we can transition that a little bit better to players and then dive into the knockout rounds. Who, what, not who, what was the best game of the tournament so far, in your opinions? We'll stay specifically in the group stage. Um, let's start with Drew because we're just going to swing it around in a circle. Drew, what has been the best game f- that you've watched so far at MLS back? Well, if you had asked me when the Whitecaps were up 3-1, to one, I would have said Vancouver-San Jose. Um, but seeing that collapse made it not the best game, although it was super entertaining. I was pulling for the Whitecaps win in that one. Um, but I think I'm going to have to say uh, Toronto-Montreal. Um, there is a lot going into that game, and there's a lot about the rivalries in this uh, MLS's back and whether or not the draw was random or not. And obviously we had that debate. Um, but they created a lot of rivalries, and this rivalry lived, lived up to expectations. Super entertaining. Um, yeah, as 4-3 finished, Toronto came out on top, so good for you, Connor, seeing your boys win. Uh, yeah, that game was super entertaining, and when we talk about players, Io Akinola for Toronto was absolutely outstanding this tournament. Um, but as far as games go, uh, I'm going to say Toronto-Montreal was my favorite game to watch. Uh, Josh, what was your favorite game to watch? I think this might be a little surprising because I don't think a lot of people were talking about this game the way they should have, but the LAFC-Houston game that went 3-3, for me personally, that was the most entertaining one that I watched, and especially that first half because I think that's when... I think Houston was winning 3-2 going into halftime, but that one was super back and forth. It had some great goals between both teams. Memo Rodriguez had a really good early goal. I think it was from the edge of the box or outside of the box, real low driven, good shot. And then Diego Rossi continued to look great as we saw against uh, LA Galaxy with his four spot. And then seeing Bradley Wright Phillips score again was really cool. He clearly feels like he's got a lot left to prove. I think people have sort of forgotten about him because he had so many injuries last season and just didn't play a lot for Red Bulls. So for him to be back on the field and he's with a team that clearly has a system that fits him getting him the ball in the box. So for me, the LAFC-Houston game was super entertaining, really back and forth, and it was fun to see that game play out to a draw. What about you, Manuel? Did you have a best game of the group stage? I actually thought all the LAFC games were very entertaining. <laughs> I mean, they were, the, they were probably involved in most of the uh, most goals in the entire tournament. You can take that 3-3 against Houston, that 6-2 against LA Galaxy that exposed the, the most storied franchise in MLS significantly right um that two to draw against the timbers i i think all of those would be a very high pick um i mean you guys mentioned montreal against toronto um with ayo akinola scoring the three goals and uh, i i think hands down for me he's been the best player at the tournament and it's too bad that he was out um well out with that hamstring injury um, but yeah, I think, you know, I, I will have to agree with you. That's 3-3 draw between LAFC and Houston. Um, highly entertaining whenever you see um, see them play against each other, right? So um, yeah, um, that's definitely for me, that's my top pick. Before we move on, I just wanted to say, you know, we all talked about our favorites so far from the group stage and i think it's really interesting that we haven't really discussed lafc and i think the group stage sort of it it not necessarily exposed them but it definitely sort of showed some weaknesses because they gave up multiple goals in all of those games and yeah their style sort of lends them to that 
And I do think, for example, against LA Galaxy, there's sort of some fluky goals, right? There was the own goal and then the penalty, which was not the clearest of calls. But at the end of the day, you know, Drew was talking about it a lot. Defense is super important. And we already saw them struggle against Seattle last year. And that's who they're going to end up playing in this first knockout game. So I think their defense is going to be something to watch for and whether or not they can stay organized enough to to stay ahead of whoever they're playing. We know they're going to score the goals. I think it's just going to come down to whether or not they can stop the other team from scoring goals. Oh, yeah, you, you're 100% right there. I think that, um, you know, if you can't defend, I, I can't remember the goal-scoring record last year, but I know they've scored the most, but they think they were also up there with the most conceded in the, in the regular season. And that's that's a big problem because in you know in knockout games you sometimes you look at what Vancouver did last night, you know, if you are sound defensively and they, they gave up a ton of shots, but there wasn't really that much that was that dangerous in there, and that is that is something that you, that can be worrying in the knockout stage, and that's it has exposed them in the past and it might expose them when they play Seattle Sounders. Yeah, that's going to be a really really good game. Um, potentially going to be the game of the tournament, uh, featuring two of the best teams in the tournament. But let's sort of move on from the group stage, and let's start talking about the knockout round, because there have already been some surprises. Uh, I already mentioned one of them, or we've mentioned it multiple times in the Toronto-New York City game. Uh, But we aren't going to start with that. We're going to start with, because Ivan Ornelas, um, friend of the show, he was on last week. I was talking to him about the San Jose and how he thinks that they're going to do. And he asked me to say this on uh, podcast, uh, which I wasn't sure about because I hate making predictions, as Josh knows after last night where he put Toronto beating New York City FC before the game had even started in the document and promptly jinxed it. Um, Ivan predicts a one nothing win for the San Jose Earthquakes over RSL. And I told him if he jinxes it, it's not on me. So, Ivan, I sure hope you're right, man. Um, Now, let's dive into the games that have already happened. And we'll start with the very first one. Orlando over Montreal. What did you guys think of this game? And what has been really noticeable uh, for you about uh, those two teams? And the sort of advantages or disadvantages they might have had going into that game? Yeah, um... I really, really want Thierry Ori succeed in this league because I think that um, I, I think he can teach teach kids the importance of football culture, especially in this country in Canada. You know where we where we we're just getting to really know the sport, and it is it is the biggest grassroots sport in this country already. But you know we're still only grasping the reality of of the culture of the sport and um it is a, a sport played by many many immigrants and you know Canada is an immigration country and i think Thierry Ori can be a role model for that and i really want him to succeed um that said this montreal team um is very obviously a work in progress and i think that there is a lot of pieces there that that going to work and you can see at times that Ori is is really going to if he's given the money, the time, and the patience, which is difficult to get in Montreal. I mean, we know it is a ho- very difficult hockey market. It's not much different with the Saputo family and the impact. Uh, I think that I hope they're giving him the time because I think he can make a huge cultural shift in what is one of the three most important cities in this country. And I really want him to become 
sort of a role model for an entire generation of young Canadian football players that are coming up. And, you know, um, him being black and the cultural, the, the cultural importance of that right now, I think is also very important. You look at our national team, the vast majority of our players are black immigrants or families that have come to this country as refugees from Africa. And I think for them to have someone like Ori here is an important role model. So I really, really want him to succeed. And I see glimpses of it already, but and he saw glimpses of it throughout the entire tournament. For them to get to the stage, I think, was a success. But I think they're also a big work in progress. And then against Orlando, the, the, little, the problems that they have um, you know, in scoring, but also still small defensive mistakes, I think they were very heavily exposed. Yeah, I think that's pretty good way of putting it. They're a team in progress. And some of their signings haven't necessarily worked out the way that they wanted them to. And Boyan and... It's a team lacking a lot of creativity up top. I think losing Ignacio Piatti was a pretty brutal blow to them. Uh, And if they really want to succeed, I think they need somebody who can get the ball in the back of the net. I know uh, Maximiliano Aruti is good, but I don't think he's quite at the caliber of being able to carry a team on his back. And with the way that Montreal is designed, with a very big focus on defensive midfielders and Wanyama and Piet. I think they really need someone like that. Um, so we'll see what they do. Uh, Terry Henry is, again, as you mentioned, he's a brilliant, brilliant figure for Montreal uh, and for Canadians. You know, Alfonso Davies, Jonathan David, um, Mark anthony Kay are some of the most promising young talent coming out of this country. And they have someone to look up to and someone who's had a ton of success in Europe uh, who can be a role model. And I think it'll be huge for the program in Canada uh, as it continues to grow and as we get closer to 2026. Um, so, yeah, I really, really like you, like what you said around that and something I haven't really thought about very much. Um Josh and Drew, let's dive into what you guys have to say. Uh, More so around Orlando, because we've talked about Montreal a lot. What did you think of Orlando in this match? Yeah, I think when we talked about uh, teams that surprised us, I think Orlando City could very much fit in that conversation. Um, I know when we made our predictions, I picked them to get out of the group, but that was when they still had, I believe it was a six-team group. Um, And if you had asked me, when the new group alignments, if I'd pick them to get out of the group stage, there's no way I would have picked them. Uh, so I've been very surprised by Orlando, which has been a pretty good time for Orlando City supporters while they're playing good. Atlanta is on the exact opposite end. So yeah, I've been surprised by Orlando. I think they've been really good. Um, I don't think they're going to get past this Seattle LAFC winner. Uh, I think this is where the run ends. But yeah, they've surprised me a lot. Uh, I think when you do think of teams that have surprised us in this tournament. Orlando's right up there in the top. Um, I think it's unfortunate where they fell in the knockout round because they have arguably the two best teams in the league waiting for them, uh, depending on who wins the Seattle LAFC game. So they've played really well. Um, I think, yeah, they deserve the win. They deserve to be where they are, but I don't see them going past Seattle and LAFC. Josh, what have you thought about Orlando so far? Yeah, they've definitely been a surprise. I would say a a pleasant surprise for their fans who've been waiting a long time for their team to play well. They've always had a really passionate fan base. And I think you're seeing the effects of Oscar Pereja as their coach. He's clearly very good at managing his players. He's very good at getting the best out of them. And he's good at 
being clear in what he wants from them on the pitch. And you're seeing that they've played very well in all of their games. They could have beat Montreal by many more goals than just one nothing. There was a couple of of close finishing issues, and there was even that one pretty bad offside call that took away a goal. But I want to go back to Montreal for a second. They, to me, were the most frustrating team to watch out of the entire tournament so far. I found myself very annoyed at some of their giveaways all over the place. I felt like they turned the ball over a lot more than other teams, and I don't have any stats to back that up. It's just the impression that I was getting from watching them. And so I think you guys are right. They're definitely a a team in progress. But at the same time, I just – they they look like they could be so much better right now. And, and yeah, you know, Henri hasn't been there for very long, and you can tell he's still trying to figure out what to do with this team. He hasn't been given a very good roster. It's a very mismatched roster. And I I personally just did not like watching them because of those giveaways, because of their, I don't want to say lack of effort, but they're definitely seen at times where they'd turn the ball over and then there wasn't necessarily a rush to get it back. It was just kind of like, eh, I just passed the ball to the other team, whatever. And so I did not like watching them. And I even thought that they would do better than this. I thought they would put up at least a, a better fight. So for me, it was disappointing to see the way Montreal played. You know, Good for them getting into the knockout round and, and good for them for only losing by one goal to Orlando. But definitely a frustrating squad to watch. have to agree with that. Um, let's move on to the second match in... Philadelphia Union over the New England Revolution. Uh, another 1-0 finish. Um, what did you guys think of this game? Because these were two teams who we didn't necessarily think were going to win the tournament, but we knew that they were pretty solid. Um, how did you find the match, and how do you see Philadelphia continuing on in this tournament? Just sort of what did you think of this entire game in general? Yeah, I think that um, I think there's a lot of attention on Philadelphia because they have Brandon Aronson, right? Who we all all know and expect to go go to Europe very soon. It's um, one of the brightest talents in in, in North America. Um, but yeah, I think this it's it's interesting because we usually kind of forget about the union and the fact that they exist, right? <laughs> Which is too bad because they do they do good work and they have been doing very good work. Um, there's, there's a German there, Ernst Tanner, who's the sporting director, and he's um, he's doing very good work finding players, recruiting players. It's very small payroll, but and I think they're definitely outperforming that small payroll. And I think this is actually a team that could go very deep in this tournament, and we saw why because they're just extremely effective. Um, with what they do you know they make very few mistakes when they when they do get in front of the goal they, they usually capitalize on it um, this is a team that I really like and uh, New England I think in this game in particular they, I mean they rely a lot on Gustavo Bo and when Gustavo Bo gets a goal that's great and if not you know there's not very much else going on there so and Gustavo Bo had the best chances in that game. And, um, you know, if you shut him out, then you basically shut out that entire team. That said, Bruce Arena, I think he's turning around that, that franchise. Uh, I really do think that, that's, that, that, you know, that this tournament is actually helping them. Uh, I know he got ejected after this game with a red card, but um, probably said what he thought about the performance and everything that was going on. <laughs> that didn't go over very well. But um, I do think that, you know, for both those teams, um, I think that they're actually on an upwards trajectory and we kind of keep forgetting about them. 
because you know we haven't really done that much in, in recent years but they are silently doing very good work they are a team that we tend to forget about and bruce arena um i wouldn't say i'm a huge fan of him from that game because we heard less audio than i think would have been ideal from the commentary but uh i guess it's bruce arena so he'll do what he wants um josh and drew what did you guys sort of think of this game I, I've actually been a little disappointed by Philadelphia so far. And I know that's kind of a strange thing to say because here they are. You know, they've booked their spot into the quarterfinal. But I picked them to go to the semifinal. I picked them to make it to the Final Four because I think their style, their pressing style, that they've really transitioned into over the last year and a half since Tanner took over, you know, they that's a style that can give basically every team problems. And the way they were playing before the shutdown, right, that – big draw against LAFC in LA was huge and I just think that they've sort of been underperforming to my expectations that being said they've been slightly outperforming themselves in Orlando they have not looked great during some stretches of their matches and I think against maybe better teams they'll get punished for that they still did great in their group and so far of the knockout games, all three of Group A's teams have advanced, so that's proving that that's a strong group, I think, so far. And they got out of it with relative ease. But, you know, it's sort of taken these moments of individual brilliance. Sergio Santos was the one who sort of bailed them out this time against New England. And I I was expecting more from their press. I was expecting more chances and not necessarily running other teams into the ground. Maybe the Orlando Heat has been affecting their fitness and affecting their style of play, but I I envision them doing more. Maybe that'll change as the tournament progresses. I think some of these teams are going to start getting a little more time in between their games. So it's going to be interesting watching them going forward. Even if they've been a little disappointing for me, I, I thought... Good for them to get these results, though, because they're undefeated so far. As for New England, I think, Manuel, great point on Gustavo Bo. He's very important to them, and they tend to oh, rely on him a little too much. I've wanted to see more out of Adam Buxa, their signing over the offseason in that striker position. He has had a couple moments for them, but I don't think he's fully integrated with the squad yet. I don't think he looks... 100% comfortable and then not having Carlos Hill in that game also really affected them too I think they would have put up a, a bigger fight against Philadelphia if they had him for that whole game so New England are close Arena's doing good things but I think in the end the better team won Drew uh, what did you think about that game yeah kind of bouncing off what you just said I was very disappointed in the revolution because following I think it was their first game against Montreal it was a one nothing win I was very high on the revolution just because I thought they were so fast when Montreal turned the ball over, like Josh talked a lot about how often they turned it over. I thought the Revolution did a really good job of getting the ball to those playmakers, getting it to Carlos Hill, giving it to Gustavo Bo. And if Gustavo Bo, he had that rocket goal, one of the best goals of the tournament, but he had a lot of chances that he just couldn't put away. And I think if his finishing boots were on, that game finishes 3-4 nothing, and Bo finishes with a hat trick. Um, but after that, I mean, I think they scored one goal against D.C. and were shut out against... Toronto and in this match so I thought that first match I was very excited about the revolution I thought they had a really good shot to make a run um, again we were pretty high on the union I think we all picked them to go pretty far semifinals or 
however we pick them. But yeah, I'm disappointed in the Revolution's performance. Um, like you guys mentioned, I think is last year they made the playoffs and no one really expected them to do that. So I think they're in stage one of building something very good in New England. But I thought I was expecting more out of the Revolution just because that first game I was so impressed by how fast they got the ball from the Montreal turnovers and put it in the final third. Um, but that kind of just went away, it felt like. And maybe that's a credit to Montreal just turning the ball over more than other teams, like we mentioned. Pretty frustrating to watch them play. Um, but I was disappointed with the Revolution after being so impressed with that first performance. I was expecting them to do a little bit more. Granted, they got a really good team in the Union in the knockout round. Um, yeah, you guys made a really good point about relying on Gustavo Bo a lot. Um, and when it works, it's awesome. He finishes with a couple goals. Um, but when it doesn't work, you have results like this. So I was disappointed with the Revolution because following that win against Over Montreal, I was very excited to see what they could do in this tournament. Yeah, they're, again, two teams who we don't necessarily always think about, um, particular Philadelphia, when we think of good teams in MLS, but they're proving that they know what they're doing and they have pre um, brought up some good talent, as you mentioned, Arison. I do want to ask you one question, uh, because you are a bit of an insider. Where is your prediction to where Aronson is going to end up? Uh, do you have any sort of idea about where that sort of situation is? Yeah, I, look, it's no secret that where Ernst Tanner has come from and where he's worked in the past, right? Um, he's, he's very close connections to Hoffenheim. I know Freiburg have scouted him. Um, I know MLS soccer. Um, I think it was Tom Bogart who I know well. Um, he's, he's reported there's link to Celtic. I don't know if this, the Scottish Premiership is is a good move. Um, you see that a lot of young talent from from MLS currently are going over to Germany and that they're very successful there, um, being integrated very quickly. I think that the, the system, uh, the Bundesliga, works very well for young players like that and uh, making giving them a home very quickly um, and. You know, there is strong links historically to Germany and the United States, so that, that really helps too. Um, where does he end up? I think that, you know, it will be someone like Hoffenheim, Freiburg or Frankfurt. You know, one of those teams, um, I think it's going to be not one of the biggest clubs. It's not going to be like it was with Tyler Adams and RB Leipzig, you know, who then basically just brought him over and knew that they could integrate him straight into that system. I, I just don't don't think it's going to be the case like that because I think Brandon Aronson is a bit more of a raw product. I think he needs more time. He needs he needs time to develop. He needs to go to somewhere where they where they give him a ton of time to play and where he has a lot has almost like a father figure as a coach and for me, like that would be somewhere like Freiburg, you know, with Christian Streich is an excellent head coach, um, someone who really develops talent, and uh, I think that's probably the destination that makes the most sense in my head. Yeah, I think Bundesliga has clearly become a bit of a breeding ground for MLS talent uh, and a bit of a transition phase for them. You can see it, as you mentioned, in Tyler Adams and Alfonso Davies. So hopefully he makes that move. He seems to be very, very good uh, from watching that game in specific. So we'll see if, what, over whether or not he does move. Um, let's transition to the Sunday night games, though, because those were quite entertaining, to say the least. Um, some in more ways than others uh, for other specific teams, New York. Um Let's dive into the New York City FC versus Toronto FC matchup. We'll avoid my takes on this because I'm not in the best moods when it comes to this game. Um, but Drew, why don't we just start with you and 
get your thoughts on the TFC NYCFC game. Uh, yeah, I was. I think going into this game, there was a lot about NYCFC. I think in the previous podcast we had talked about them and how disappointed we are from them. Um, and I think I don't even know how what the total is for how many goals they've scored so far this tournament. But I feel like they just turned that all around, got off to a really good start with Medina getting the goal, I think in the fifth minute pretty early on. Um, so it felt like the old NYCFC was back. Um, whether or not they can use that momentum in the coming stages, that remains to be seen. But I got a very similar feel when Seattle beat, I think it was Vancouver 4-0, something like that. Um, this feels like a really good confidence booster for NYCFC. And, yeah, I was really impressed by them. Uh, Toronto FC was not the TFC we expected. I think I had them in the final. So I was disappointed to not only see them go out so soon, but to see them go out in the manner that they did. Um, but, yeah, I think this is going to be a really good confidence booster for NYCFC, getting a big win against a really good team like TFC. And again, this is coming off a stretch where I really didn't give them a shot against Toronto. They had scored a whole lot of goals, and that had been the narrative around them is how they're going to score. And they got off to a really good start in this game um, and were able to hold it on and add two more later. So I was very impressed by NYCFC. This felt like a turning point for them in this tournament. Um, whether or not that lasts, uh, we'll see how that goes. But I think I think this is the NYCFC that we expected. I think this is the first time they've shown up so far this tournament. Yeah, I was shocked at the way they came out and played last night. They really looked like they were on a mission just from the, the first whistle. And really, it kind of seemed like Toronto was caught off guard by that. It's almost as if they were sort of underestimating what NYCFC was going to do, which is disappointing. I'm with you, Drew. I had Toronto, I think, in the final. Uh, they are always such a good tournament team. And yeah, they've been dealing with some injuries, and losing Akinola was was huge for them, I think. But still, Michael Bradley put in a horrible performance. He seemed like he was turning the ball over in midfield every time he got a touch. And really, Toronto just struggled to get the ball into NYCFC's half. They just couldn't do anything against him. So I was more shocked at NYCFC coming out and really being proactive, especially with how their group stage games went. And then to have Maxi Morales come off the bench and provide even more of a boost, they seriously, going forward, could be a team... That might end up going all the way to the final now, depending on who they come up against. Manuel, what was your takeaway from last night's game? Yeah, one hundred. I mean, one hundred percent. The fact that the way they came out of out of the dressing room, basically wanting to straight away was about business for them, right? And uh, you could you could really sense that history between those two clubs, New York New York City City FC, being knocked out several times now by Toronto and in the playoffs and. Um, you could really sense that they didn't like that very much and that this was something about a little bit about revenge and i really liked the game plan from the very first minute they were pressing them very very high and made the most of you know what has been a very dense schedule for toronto and the fact that um, bradley isn't the youngest anymore in midfield and is very seems seemed very very vulnerable you know um, you always talk about midfielders being press resistant, and he really wasn't press resistant in this game. And uh, New York made the most out of getting a goal in the fifth minute is key um, because that puts the other puts the opponent on the back foot the entire match, especially when you're already struggling with fitness the way they were. And then getting a second half goal very early on to basically cap it off. I mean, at that point you knew it was done. It was a done deal, right? And it's it's an, it was an interesting one for me because I know that those two teams have 
two of the biggest payrolls in MLS, Toronto in particular, we know that they have the highest payroll in this league. Uh, you know, they are the they don't spend the most in transfer fees, but they certainly spend the most in wages. That, that's a fact. We all know that, right? So I'm always surprised. We always talk about them building dynasties and winning all these championships. But when you look at their payroll, it should actually be more. And it's because Greg Vanny too often gets found out. And it's because his teams are not press resistant. His teams are not struggling when they when they um, you know face teams that played them very deep. And his teams are not that really that consistent you know they played one strong season but then had a terrible year the year after and that's always because of fitness so i think there will be some questions asked in toronto i think they'd be not so clever to go back to the status quo and say okay well this is just a tournament only the group stage matches really matter right for the for the regular season standings but I think they, they will have to look at this tournament uh, long and hard and really uh, evaluate what they have with the amount of money they're spending on the squad. Yeah, this is the only game that I got a prediction wrong. Going into the knockout, I, I went ahead and picked who I thought was going to win. And I picking Toronto over NYCFC was a no-brainer given their history in playoffs. Like you mentioned, it seems... Every year they run into each other, and every year Toronto has no problem getting rid of the citizens. So... I was surprised last night. I think a lot of people were, and I think you're right. There might need to be some questions asked of Toronto. It, and bringing up the fitness is an interesting point because it seems like they're always dealing with some sort of issues with injuries, but also between their players and their fitness staff. We've seen Josie Altidore make some comments in the past about the staff there, and I don't know if there's been changes in that department, but if there hasn't, that might need to be something that needs to be looked at, or maybe players will be hesitant to come to Toronto. Two of your, two of your best strikers are out. Ayo Akinola, 20-year-old, being out with a hamstring discomfort. He's 20. You know, <laughs> it, that's, um, yeah, I, that just shouldn't happen. And um, it, it's these little things that, that you see with this club, right, that, that just bother me. And, that, and you actually bring up an interesting point. You know, it's not just that you and I and everyone was surprised by the way New York City FC handled this. Toronto were surprised. They were surprised by the way New York City FC played. And if you're a good head coach, you don't get surprised. Um, that's just that's just my personal opinion. But, you know, New York City FC came out there with a game plan and Toronto didn't. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I know Connor is not currently with us to give us his thoughts, but I, I know that he's upset with the way Vanny's handled the tournament. He sort of touched on that a little bit earlier, and, and he'd probably be the first person to say that Vanny's been super inconsistent with his coaching, and it really showed itself last night. Hopefully we'll get Connor's opinion. Hopefully he can find his way back with us. Uh, before that, though, we'll go ahead and talk about the Sporting Kansas City-Vancouver game. And I want to start by talking about, I think what the biggest storyline is, is Thomas Assal, the 21-year-old third-string goalkeeper, now, Manuel, you deal a lot with market valuations, working with Transfer Market. My question to you is, how much did these two and a half games for Hassal affect his market value? Because he had to come on against Seattle. He made some pretty good saves in that one, didn't give up a goal. They were already down three. He kept a clean sheet against Chicago and then kept a clean sheet last night, obviously, before losing in penalties. So can you give us any insight into how his performance in this tournament might affect his valuation going forward? Uh, first of all, like, uh, we got our market values and market evaluations very secretly. I think it's more secret than uh, 
the Coca-Cola recipe until it comes out. We don't say very much. We drop hints. Um, I can tell you that the next market evaluation is going to be based on this tournament. This is not a normal year, right? Usually we do the market evaluation a few games into the season. And then uh, we do another one um, towards the end of the season or when the season is concluded. That has been incredibly hard, not just with MLS, but every league around the world because of what's going on. With this in mind, uh, I, I did tweet yesterday that the 55,000 seem a little low. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I can, I, can tell, I can just say that. It seems a little low right now. You know, I'm not saying he's going to be worth millions now because that's just not how it works. Uh, you know, you need a bit of a bigger picture. But I think that 55,000 is low. He's a talent. He's a talented keeper without a doubt. He's going to have a future in this league. Um, he's 21, you know, so he's not the youngest anymore. Um, I think this is for him the time to really do make a mark. If he wants to make it professionally and uh, make it in this league, this is the time for him to do it. Um, he's playing behind a very good goalkeeper. Maxim Kripo is probably one of the best keepers in this league, who's also emerged, um, you know, from the Whitecaps just in the recent years or so. So this is, this is, a, this is a market that does a lot of things right. And I, I really like the way that um, the the Whitecaps in general, not just the Thomas Hassal situation and, and how they handled this entire tournament. This is this is a franchise that it's an absolute disarray. Has been in disarray for a long time. Uh, I work very closely with them, and they're not always the easiest club to cover as a journalist. But um, Mark dos Santos is an absolute gentleman, uh, one of the most notable, most most educated coaches out there um, he's dealing with a situation that is very hard to deal with and when you look at this through the way he dealt with this Thomas Hassal the confidence that he installed in this keeper the way he put out a team that missed 10 players you know and still got out of the group stage I think um, the Whitecaps can take a lot of positives um, not just the goalkeeper but through the board they can take a lot of positives away from this tournament yeah, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast, especially recently with the, the 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 shakeup in the front office about how unorganized the Whitecaps seem. And I really hope that they're patient with Mark Dos Santos. He's clearly a good coach, and I think he's starting to get some of the players that can help that team become really good. I Again, I just hope that they're patient with him and they give him the time that he needs to build the proper culture there because it's something that's definitely been lacking there for a while. Drew, what did you take away from the game last night and what was sort of your impression from Hassal? Yeah, I mean, Hassal is going to take the headlines, right? I think as he should. Um, and I think it's just something with the goalkeepers in Vancouver because, I mean, you had Max McCarpeau, like Manuel said, one of the best in the league. And he, I feel like he's replacing David Osted, which I'm not sure. I think, I don't know where he is after his stint with DC United. But I thought David Osted was one of the best in the league when he was in his prime with Vancouver. So maybe it's just something with a goalkeeping coach in Vancouver. But, yeah, I saw it take the storylines, as he should. Um, but there's only so much you can do in a penalty shootout, right? I don't think Vancouver took a lot of their penalties very well. Um, but yeah, again, like Manuel said, Vancouver, I think this was a random bright spot in this organization that it doesn't feel like anything's going right for them right now. Um, and Mark Dos Santos, yeah, I think this is only his second year with them. And it feels like he, this tournament was the start of something that's going to be really special in Vancouver when you get the base that was built in this tournament and you get that with, like we said, 10 players that weren't there. And those were good, 10 very good players with Lucas Cavallini, Freddie Montero, um, and Ricketts not being there. So I think Vancouver, 
it's it's all up from here following 2019, right? One of, if not the worst team in the league last year. So it's not hard to go to get any worse than they were in 2019. And this tournament, I think, was a little base that they can build on. Um, I'm not sure where they'll fall if we have a normal regular season, but this tournament was very exciting. That game against Chicago was just the show of mentality that Marco Santos, I think, has instilled in this club that they needed a result that no one thought they were going to get, and they came out and did it with a lot of their roster gone. So all positives from Vancouver. Um, it stinks that they went out. Um, I think Ali Adnan kind of solidified himself as one of the best players in the league uh, with that goal against San Jose where he cut in. That was one of the best goals in the tournament. So all good things from Vancouver. Um, I think they're taking a lot of positives from this competition into 2020 if we have the rest of 2020, um, and especially into 2021 if we have what whatever 2021 looks like. No one knows, but I think a lot of really good things building in Vancouver in a time where no one really expected anything good from the Whitecaps right now. Yeah, I mean, maybe just to add, um, I covered the Vancouver Whitecaps as a beat writer for the last two years. Uh, so <laughs> went to every single home game and uh, Carl, the, the, Robo, the Robo years and the Carl Robinson, that was already difficult. Um, I was really excited when Marco Santos came in because of the, the pedigree that he brings. You know, he's, he's won at every level that he's coached at. I think that when you talk to him, and I, I had, I've been very lucky that I've interviewed him twice on one-on-one interviews. Obviously, I speak to him after coaching sessions, after, after games, every game. And um, this is this is a person who who knows his stuff. He really knows his stuff. And he's fundamentally a very good coach. And um, we all in Vancouver are rooting that he is successful. The problem is, you know, in German, you say the fish stinks from the head. And that's the problem in Vancouver. The, the fish stinks from the head. It's from the ownership. It's the people that were brought in. They brought in a sporting director from Germany who's never been a sporting director. Um, it's a very questionable hire, in my opinion. You know, um, having covering the Bundesliga full time and knowing the work that he's done there, and, and then putting him to, into a role that doesn't that he's never fulfilled. That those are things that, when you are Marco Santos, must be very frustrating. And uh, I really hope that you know that he can sort of go away from this tournament and say, look, everything that went wrong went wrong in this tournament and I still got you guys results. Now give me the pieces to have success here. And I think he is in a strong enough position to do this because, you know, this is pretty, he's pretty much the only thing that's going well for this franchise. And uh, if that breaks away, then they're in real big trouble. Um, so yeah, I really hope that this, that, that this, this will give him some ammunition to get some positive change in. And uh, before we get back to Connor now that he's rejoined us and we'll get his thoughts on the Toronto game last night, I just want to point out that I'm personally worried about what Sporting Kansas City is going to do going forward in this tournament. They really struggled against Vancouver last night. And Manuel, you mentioned it earlier, but they got a lot of shots off, yes, but not many of them were very high quality shots. And a team that has added some strong attacking pieces in Gadi Kinda and Alan Polito, a team that is under one of the best coaches in the league, Peter Vermees, should be performing better than this. And I was starting to get worried as the game progressed last night that they were going to concede a goal late because that's sort of been the theme of this team since the beginning of last year. And yes, they were dealing with tons of injuries, but it's almost starting to look like a mentality issue with this team and giving up those late goals, and that is going to be very worrisome for them, especially as the knockout 
rounds begin to progress. Connor, give us your thoughts on the Toronto game last night as someone who closely follows the Toronto FC team. Well, first off, I'd like to apologize because now is the time that my Wi-Fi decided would be the perfect time to just completely decimate itself. Um, Kind of like Toronto FC did last night against New York City. That was one of the worst performances they've had since 2018. Uh, And if you remember 2018, you can remember that absolutely nothing went right that year. Um, Overall, I was just supremely disappointed. Uh, I thought Michael Bradley was abysmal. I thought he looked just exhausted because he played every single minute of the entire tournament up until that point, which is just so insanely dumb on Vanny's part when you have a player like Liam Fraser sitting on the bench. Um, I thought Omar Gonzalez had one of the worst tournaments or few games that I've seen him play in a long, long time. He was just, his pace was not there. He was constantly tired. He just didn't really fit that MLS is back tournament mold, which Toronto really needed him to do. He was good in the air as always, but he wasn't what he needed to be. And it showed last night. Um, New York City FC, props to them. They played incredibly well. I was very impressed with their performance and I was impressed with just everything that they did to capitalize on Toronto's mistakes. Um, But look, Toronto, they didn't want to go to that tournament, as Manuel pointed out earlier. Uh, That was very clear. And they just showed it in that game. And look, I guess they can focus now on the rest of the season, but we'll see whether or not they can actually perform and whether a season even happens. Um, But with that, is there anything else that anybody would like to add to the podcast? Um, Because if not, I think we'll take us out. Uh, It's been a very, very enjoyable podcast, Manuel. We thank you for coming on. Uh, If you'd like to check out Manuel, he writes for Transfer Market. He's the head of their North America stuff um he just did an interview with Iowa Canola who TFC really could have used last night um he's also did one with Mark DeSantos so you can go and check that stuff out he's got some very good connections if you want transfer rumors and buzz and stuff like that that's also the place to go um his Twitter account is just Manuel it's it sounds like Veth uh but it's said fate so v-e-t-h uh on twitter we'll link to it when we tweet the podcast out and i'm sure he'll retweet it as well um but thank you we really 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 appreciate you coming on to talk everything mls is back uh, and taking the time out of your day to join us for the podcast um but with that Thank you for listening. You can check out all of the contributors' written work at MLSMultiplex.com. You can check out myself on Twitter at CWG Somerville. Uh, Josh can be checked out at Josh underscore Boland. And you can check out Drew on Twitter at underscore Drew Hubbard. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another podcast. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the MLS Multiplex Podcast. 
Check out all of the contributors' written work at MLSMultiplex.com.